Citizen Space Science, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX is set to launch another crew of private astronauts from Kennedy Space Center, this time on a 10-day stay on the International Space Station. A former NASA astronaut will command the mission, chartered by private company Axiom, and will fly to space with three other space tourists, an American, Canadian, and Israeli. Each of these seats for the space tourist crew costs tens of millions of dollars each, and despite the out-of-pocket costs, those crew members will still have to work on their trip. Researchers are taking advantage of the increased access to space and human subjects thanks to these private space missions. The crew have worked with various researchers and organizations before their flight and plan to conduct science while on board. Understanding how the human body is affected by space travel is difficult to understand. So few people have actually gone to space, and those in orbit have packed schedules. That's why organizations like the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH, based out of Baylor College of Medicine, are jumping on the chance to conduct human research on private space participants. We'll speak with Dr. Jen Fogarty, Trish's chief scientific officer, about this new dawn of space research and how these studies might help get astronauts to places like Mars while also helping us stay healthy down here on Earth. Citizen Science takes flight. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Last summer, a crew of four private civilians flew to orbit in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. The crew of the Inspiration4 mission participated in medical research in flight. Ahead of that flight, we spoke with a researcher from Trish about the mission and what they hope to learn about human spaceflight. I'll link to that episode on this episode's show notes. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Well, Trish is taking advantage of another opportunity to study human space participants, and surely it won't be the last. To talk more about this new era of human space research, we're joined by Dr. Jen Fogarty. She's Trish's chief scientific officer. Dr. Fogarty, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. So let's talk a bit about Trish and and kind of uh, what the organization aims to do and and why why space research and space science research is so important to uh, some of the things you're, you're you're trying to do. Sure, of course. So the the Translational Research Institute is as, actually a cooperative agreement. So it's funded by NASA at its core because uh, NASA has a human research program that, of course, is dedicated to solving these challenges of getting people into space and for very long duration missions that are going to take us places we have yet to go. Uh, But specifically, Trish was designed to be a very high risk, innovative uh, approach. And and that goes back to some business models where you look at, you know, the institution has some requirements uh, that can be relatively conservative and they they do a lot of things incrementally because they need to make certain progress and certain milestones and they can't take a lot of risk. Um, However, Trish was considered the component that's the dual adapted organization where you can have this radical arm that it has super high throughput because one of the things when you do research uh, on you know, whether it be disease or or space flight in this case, the, the human component of the challenges is the more quickly you can make decisions about things that matter, the more agile you can be and move to the thing that's going to make the difference. And I know that's a lot of jargon-ish, but what it means is real zeros are important. So even if someone thinks 
it's going to fail. So from an incremental standpoint, it doesn't make sense to fund it because it has a high likelihood of failure, whether that because of technology or some other component. But, it, you know, it's still going to be scientifically valid. It's just conceptually it's going to fail. Trish is designed to say we're going to go get that real zero because there's a chance, a probability that this could be the thing that is the most innovative and a step function change. It's the out of the box idea. And, and that also is that kind of thinking is about like unconscious bias. You know, all of us, including scientists, we all have our, our areas of expertise, our training and our box we're in. And we've learned a lot of things um, where we probably have ideas of things we don't think will work and we don't even think they're worth testing. And that has probably stopped more progress than just giving it a try. But there's always up against that, how, much, how many dollars do you have or how much time is there? So Trish is really designed to do that kind of work. Right now, Trish has a call out that's one that's it's very controversial in the spaceflight community, so I think it's a good example. But the idea of affecting humans' metabolism to kind of slow everything down. Like people use terms like torpor or hibernation, which is, you know, we understand that in the animal world. Um, and so you can wrap your brain around a mammal, whether it be a bear or another mammal that goes into hibernation during cold periods or periods where there's lack of food, um, to preserve its, its capabilities and its energy state, right, to be functional later at some future time. So the idea that we need to get to a place because the resources of feeding people for a mission that is three or five years long, if we're going to go to Mars and come back and depending on the trajectory, we actually don't have the capability to feed the crew right now. It's, we do not have food systems that are capable of doing that job. And then when you talk about the size of the crew, the caloric intake every day, the, the actual mass of what it takes to put that food up there and all the packaging that comes with it and the preservation techniques, that, well, an alternative is you use the body. Like, let's slow the metabolism down and put people in a state where they don't have those type of energy demands so you don't have to bring those things. Um, there are also some biology that says that slowing the metabolism down has benefits and can be protective. That's where it's still very open-ended and controversial. It depends on what animal or, you know, cell line you're studying the results. So those out-of-the-box things, that if we could get some results that are applicable, and, and that's the other component of the program, it's not just this esoteric I wonder if. It's I wonder if, and then if the if is possible, how do you make it actionable? What about it? can you design to actually put into a mission? So in the case of affecting metabolism, if we understood the biochemical pathways and kind of the epigenetics. How do you change gene expression so that you can actually slow it down, but you don't do harm? You know, you're not putting someone in a situation where when you wake them up or bring them out of the state of suspended, I think you'd say suspended animation, you know, are you in a situation where they've accumulated toxins or is there something dangerous about that state? So there's a lot of work in the details, but that's one where, you know, it's controversial enough that no one's putting a lot out there. And he said, well, the real zeros and ones matter because if, if this right now, if the science or technology doesn't support it, we need to know why. But if there's a glimmer of something to learn, and that kind of speaks to it could be DNA repair capability. It could be some other biochemical pathway that, that's really interesting that we can exploit in a countermeasure way. So there's offshoots that we could learn, even if ultimately we can't, you know, sus reducing metabolism is not the way to go. But I think just the data to know those answers and give us better decision-making are incredibly important. 
you mentioned, you know, those ideas are controversial and, and time on the station to conduct um, scientific experiments is, is very finite and limited. Um, how, how has these these kind of, um, you know, private missions, like uh, I'm thinking back to Inspiration4 and then also um, the upcoming Axiom1 mission, how is that kind of expanding the kind of platform of space-based research for, for you to explore these interesting topics? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a good observation. I mean, it, it's doing exactly that. Um, it's opening up that aperture of possibilities because these crews um, are not dedicated to certain other activities. So the paradigm would be, and I was with NASA for several years before I came to Trish and started working on some other things. So the the time constraints, the crew are are operating the vehicle while they're technicians for the science, while they are the subjects for the human <laughs> human research, in any given day, the limit of what you can accomplish and accomplish across the mission. And then, oh, if a solar array goes down or if the toilet breaks, that becomes a priority of where the crew time is spent rather than what was pre, pre-scheduled. So they, the pull on their time is, is uh, a lot. And so there's a lot of, and there's a lot of people and organizations who have, kind of uh, rights to pieces of their time. So there's always this huge competition about w- the prioritization of their work. In the in the commercial domain, these people are going up with their entire time dedicated to either th- objectives and agendas that they bring to the table. That's why they're buying a ticket. But also most of them have expressed very altruistic uh, agendas that say, I want to go up and I want to do stuff that matters. What kind of science do you need done? And that's what they're dedicating their time to. So they don't have the same pulls on on them in terms of operationally be required to operate vehicles and do all of those maintenance and, and other responsibilities. So I think they have the time to do it. They have the desire to do it. And they're also right now having the throughput. Their missions are shorter, you know, which is something you have to consider when you're going to get data from them. What does that mean? And I think it's always important. Never get me wrong, especially with human data. Yeah, I would never not not take the opportunity to go get more data to inform decision making but because of the shorter component of their mission we have more people going you know uh, earlier today we were discussing our portfolio and in some of the measurements in six months from the commercial program our group has been able to get nine participants and we call it an n number right when you're talking science and statistics so the n number was nine on a traditional flight study done via NASA and the International Space Station, that could take you five years to get an N of nine. So when you talk reducing the time scale on, on, for something meaningful to learn and and decide whether this is a fork, you know, this, is it where is this telling me to go if there's a fork in the road scientifically? I have to decide here the difference between understanding it in six months to a year or understanding it between five and ten years. That's a huge gain in time to inform our decision-making. So I think commercial space has really become a tremendous offering to, um, to open up those possibilities of data gathering at large scale uh, and decision-making that's much more uh, rapid. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. You really do kind of open up your sample size that way, which is what researchers want, right? You want to have a larger data set with, with more people that, that may be, you know, different and affected different ways while in space, right? Exactly. I mean, the confidence you get, I mean, human variability, given our diverse genetic background and epigenetic background, there's so many factors in, in what makes us function the way we do and trying to tease out which matter, you know, and when you add stressors like spaceflight, it, it, you know, it, 
the end number becomes daunting. And, you know, on earth, you're doing clinical trials with hundreds of thousands of people sometimes, right, to get the answer and have certainty about the answer. So in space, we work with like an N of 10. And again, it, it could take you five to 10 years, depending on the circumstances of the science and the time needed. So commercial spaceflight, I think, is really going to accelerate that process for us. Mm-hmm. But when only 600 people have been to space, if you're if you're getting data from, from nine of them, that that's pretty significant, right? Yeah. And potentially, you know, everyone is recognizing, you know, the need for diversity, the fact that of the 500 plus that have been in spaceflight through government programs for a long period of time, it was a very homogeneous population, even from a human standpoint. And there were down select issues, you know, because they came out of military or whatever it was that, you know, I was part of groups who tried to go in and data mine those things. And you knew the limitations. It was clear that we were not seeing a full spectrum uh, you know, of, of what you would see in a diverse population. And there were many warnings, you know, it, sex differences comes up regularly, men and women, and that's fine. But, you know, ethnicity, we, you know, the things we know that really can affect outcomes are way beyond male or female. Um, so our push, even on the Trish side, uh, you know, as the new chi- chief scientific officer is to move more toward precision research, precision medicine, where learning the individual and it's called deep phenotyping, <laughs> like, like, who are you and how do you change? And then after you accumulate enough end number, you start to understand what, what is a bigger message here? Is, the, is there a more global statement you could make versus going the other way, which is I'm just going to group everybody and I'm going to do some math on the group that says what's an average, what's a standard deviation? Because it wasn't unusual in spaceflight to be able to do those mathematical calculations on the science data and have an average and say, okay, well, our expectation is you're going to be around, you know, whatever this number is with a unit. And it turns out that represents absolutely no one. No one actually landed on the average line. <laughs> and you're like, that's a very telling component of, you know, reconciling what your data looks like versus what happens when you do math on it. And can you act on a number like an average or is it just a false point? You know, so the precision component of what we're doing now uh, is really important in addition to having the latitude to get high, high end numbers quickly to inform if we have to need to make a change. I'll know in six months to a year, not five or 10 years. I mean, that's the thing that's just impressed me tremendously about the opportunity. That was Dr. Jen Fogarty, Chief Scientific Officer at Trish. Our conversation about human spaceflight research as well as its application back here on Earth continues after the break. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Dr. Jen Fogarty, Chief Scientific Officer at Trish, about new opportunities for human spaceflight research thanks to private spaceflight missions. Our conversation continues. Jen, can you tell us a bit about some of the the science and some of the uh, the research that's going to be happening uh, on these upcoming missions? What, what are you most excited about? Sure. One of the key things that Trish has done is established for commercial spaceflight um, uh, a portfolio called Essential Measures. And foundationally, what Essential Measures is doing is taking some fundamental measurements 
on everyone. It's offered, and of course you have to volunteer. But the idea is we want to understand what's going on with your sensory motor system because sensory motor is one of the most provoked systems when you talk about humans going into space and coming out of space. It's rough, right? The first couple of days, you don't feel good when you're adapting and adjusting. And then you're landing and, and landing on Earth and trying to function that first day or two can be really rough. And when you think about you know, projecting that toward a Mars-like mission. Well, the people are protected. One, when you go into spaceflight, we can give you medication, make you feel better. Uh, NASA and even commercial, like the first 24, 48 hours, don't expect a lot out of the people. Just kind of let them do the adaptation um, and help them out a little bit. Some medication and some sleep really can go a long way to help in the human body just adjust like any other place. I mean, when people go on boats or they go to altitude, this, this is not different than those experiences for some people. Your, your body can get there. It just needs some time. And everybody's time component is a little different. But on the landing scenario, the objective is to get to places where humans land and are functional. But there's no greeting committee. So now what we need to learn at landing here where they're safe and people are around them to make sure they're not harmed is really study the hell out of it. (laughs) Because if you're trying to build a countermeasure and help them be functional when they're completely autonomous, you're going to have to understand in great detail what's going on and how to combat the problem uh, in a safe way and and what's reliable. Again, going back to that, these experiences, even across the five hundred or so people that have flown tend to be very uniquely individual. Like, like, yes, they, they start to look like each other, but the time scale of recovery, the magnitude of how many people are just disabled from being dizzy versus outright vomiting. And, you know, even simple things like we get into these about like human bodily fluids, but while vomiting can be inconvenient, it's also gets to a point when it's dangerous when you're super dehydrated. So, these things that look like they're kind of operationally managed, you're like, it's really in the framework of a recovery crew. Um, the other things that we're going to be measuring across all people, and some of them are about taking samples because we actually don't know what to measure yet. So getting, you know, saliva, getting blood, getting urine, um, those are important samples to take and save because we're going to have a lot of questions later when we try to map the functional to the biological and figure out what's the linkage between the two. Um, We're very heavily invested in looking at the eyes. You know, this issue that has come up and made been we become acutely aware of it through the ISS program because of duration of mission. But even on the shortest of missions, something's happening. A chain of events are set off from the time you go to space flight and then they proceed at some trajectory of change over time during a mission. But even five or 10 days like these commercial missions, this is a critical time point to understand when do those chain of events get set off and what rate of change occurs early in the mission. Because partly it's trying to understand when should we, if we're going to build a system to interfere, which we call countermeasures, when do we deploy them? Do you want to get ahead of this problem? Or do you actually have to allow some of the adaptation to occur so that people are comfortable and normal during spaceflight but yet you haven't allowed them to become so altered and, and well-suited for spaceflight that you've now caused a problem when they come back to a gravitational field. So the eyes and this thing called uh, space-associated neuroocular syndrome is about the eye, the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid, and trying to tease out what's going on in these systems. And the, the commercial crews have been very uh, enthusiastic. Now, some of these ch- are challenging because... Um, you know, they're not zero risk uh, tests. 
So you say, well, venipuncture, like getting blood from someone, I think most people are familiar with. You go to a lab, you're in a doctor's office. Getting a lumbar puncture and someone putting a needle in your spine to get a measurement of pressure, that ups the ante a little bit. It's, it's more problematic for the individual in terms of risk. Um, some people might be more averse to it because it is a little scary to think about. So we're looking at different methodologies and kind of negotiating along the way. Like we, we all know we need this data, but what's the safest way to get it and, and what is most acceptable to the people who are doing these you know, missions? Mm-hmm. Uh, the thought of getting a, a lumbar puncture in space is making me uh, second guess uh, my wanting to travel to space. <laughs> if you're going to poke and prod me if I'm going up well, that, there. Well, <laughs> that's the exact thing we're trying. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And that is the exact thing we're trying to avoid. So there there are some implantable devices that are used by neurosurgeons that are, are quite safe. You know, putting them in is is the challenging part for the neurosurgeon. But once someone recovers and, uh, you know, they're using it in people who have chronic disease states, instead of getting continuous lumbar punctures, which are dangerous for many reasons, because every time you poke a hole, you you introduce the ability to take stuff from the outside and put it inside your body where it has no business. Um, not to mention, you know, it is painful. It is complicated. There's always side effects that can happen. But the instrumentation idea um, is becoming more and more acceptable to the larger, you know, spacefaring community. Because understanding like, okay, well, you know, some months before you go, you have to have this thing implanted. There's, there's also things we're looking at a broad spectrum of like ingestibles. There's things that can go into your body and reside. Um, there's cameras people swallow. They don't last a long time. They're traveling through your GI tract. But more and more technologies coming out of actually like the bioengineering uh, and bioinspiration to, to target things. The ICP has been really challenging because if you try to use one of the surrogate measures, there are measurements you can use in the eye. But in the case of space flight, the eye is the end affected organ. So it doesn't work so well. But, but we agree with you. The, the, you don't want to be doing essentially surgical procedures in what we can't. You can never really make a sterile field in space flight. It, it's incredibly challenging because everything's floating all of the time. And we're not sending up a trained neurosurgeon with the crew. Um, so you're dealing with training someone who's not an expert that, so those are things we want to avoid, but the, the technologies that we're triaging and kind of down selecting and then working on earth, you know, that's, this is, so we use analogs or even, you know, terrestrial medicine to say, okay, how do we position ourselves the best? But at some point you want to take that leap and do the demonstration in space flight, the, the pro of having, you know, commercial space flights right now is they're some of the shortest missions, which when you think about adverse events, having a shorter mission and somebody coming home soon anyway, gives you a factor of safety versus it was very controversial to think about instrumenting a crew member that might be going up for six months or more. And finally, you know, we've been talking a lot about understanding space flight for future space flight, but is any of this research um, going to help the rest of us down here on Earth who, who will likely not go on a mission to the moon or to Mars. Yeah, I, definitely. So a lot of what we study is about the human condition. The, the putting people into spaceflight is an extreme environment that is very provocative. And so scientifically, it's, it's pretty common to use tools that provoke a response to, to be able to find this pathway, whatever it might be, right? You, you need a signal from it. So you, I, and in sometimes spaceflight's interesting to me because, you know, when I say things like a provocative environment, you think like a stressor, like, you know, I know space radiation comes right to mind to people, but actually what's just as interesting in terms of provocative environment is the lack 
of input. The lack of gravity on the human body is incredibly disruptive to all of your hydrostatics. So that's your total plasma volume, that's your CSF pressure. And so I think we are understanding things that are actually underlying a lot of disease states on earth where the system goes wrong. The, the, the stressor wasn't the same, but the biological response is incredibly similar. And we've been able to talk to people like in the idiopathic intracranial hypertension world. If we find countermeasures for SANS, they, they're first in line to understand how we were able to treat our people because that very much may be a, a thing that they need. Also, the instrumentation that we have to come up with because of this, the constraints of the environment and the dangers, the dangers of the environment also mean that things that come back to Earth from those optimization requirements are much safer on Earth. The other part was deployability. Everything we build and the whole construct of how we operate the science to the hardware, to the procedures and the training of the people is very much aligned with remote medicine, austere medicine. But so then when you think about health equity, we can get technology into the hands of an untrained user, have them uh, do the exam, <laughs> you know, start to work with artificial intelligence to help with interpretation of the images or the data coming in, whatever the source is, whatever we're examining, whatever the person is using. And then returning to them via, at least at this point, still remote guidance. But we're even trying to grow to the point where, you know, it's an embedded capability. You are given the action as the data is coming in and being evaluated. Uh, you know, and again, there is a ton of details in there before you're comfortable and confident that your AI and your machine learning can turn out, you know, directions and actions back, you know, to a user that are appropriate. But that's the goal. And because that's our, that has to be the goal for spaceflight because eventually they will not be able to rely on Earth to tell them what to do. Um, so all of that from the biology uh, and even the tools like microphysiological systems, which are these things called tissue chips or organs on a chip, that's a method to do science, but that's also a method to do precision medicine before you even get to the human. Because if we can take your cells, put them into a tissue chip, and say test a treatment like a pharmaceutical and understand how your body would react when it's in a little micro version of you before we even test you. You never have to suffer the side effects of a bad choice. We could know that ahead of time. And, that, and those are some of the key things that because of if you if we were, you know, on Earth, we tolerate a little bit, probably a lot more risk, but because we can manage it, you can go to the emergency room, you can take the next drug, you can stop this drug. We don't have as many backups in spaceflight, so the precision has to be so much tighter that those optimizations will come back. And, and I've always been very passionate about that. And I think maybe that gets under communicated or under explained, you know, how to connect those dots. But it's I've seen it real time with telemedicine. Uh, having worked in space operations for, for about 12 years. Um, the work that went into telemedicine and guidance uh, for ultrasound alone has actually changed a lot of the way the ERs function and people are triaged today. It, it just doesn't, I guess, it, we said we, we have a little bit of work to do to, to help people understand that. That was Dr. Jen Fogarty, Chief Scientific Officer at Trish. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or do it the old-fashioned way. Visit wmfe.org slash yet? You can listen back to our previous conversation about human spaceflight research and private space missions. I'll link our previous episodes in the show notes. Visit wmfe.org slash yet? Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. 
Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Production assistance this week from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Our Way There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Support this mission by visiting WMFE.org and making a financial contribution to help fuel the show. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.